0: Welcome to Drift Off, bedtime stories to help you unwind, relax, and drift off. Thank you for joining me. I'm your host Joanne, and it's a pleasure helping you get restful sleep. I created this podcast because I wanted to provide a quiet space for comfort for my listeners. Life can get really busy, and I want this podcast to be a soft place to land at the end of the day, Where you feel safe and cozy as i read you a bedtime story to help you unwind and relax as you ease into a restful night's sleep so if you're enjoying the podcast and want to support the show so that we can continue to bring you even more sleepy bedtime stories we've created a premium membership where you can enjoy relaxing intro and ad-free listening two monthly bonus episodes as well as access to a monthly guided sleep relaxation or sleep hypnosis that you can use at bedtime to help you sleep. Go sign up at driftoff.supercast.com or see the link in the show notes. That's driftoff.supercast.com Tonight is a very special episode where I will be rebroadcasting the three top Driftoff episodes of 2022. The Wonderful Ring, by Flora Annie Steele, The Man on the Train by Lucy Maud Montgomery, and lastly, Jessamine by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Over 90 minutes of continuous storytelling, and I hope you enjoy. And so, as always, my friend. Settling comfortably under the covers... Take a full, comfortable breath. And as you exhale, relax and let go. Allow any tension to just melt away. Letting your body sink deeper and deeper down into the softness of your bed. There is nothing else to do, and nowhere else to be. So just lay back, relax, and enjoy the story. Hello and welcome, I'm Joanne, and thank you so much for joining me. Tonight's story is called The Wonderful Ring by Flora Annie Steele. And I hope you enjoy it. Know that as you focus on the narration of the story while engaging your imagination as you follow along, your mind will slowly begin to shift from being fully awake to a slower brainwave state, a calm, relaxed, dreamy state that will help you drift down all the way down into a sound and restful sleep and so let's begin this peaceful journey from wakefulness to dreamy relaxation by taking a few letting go breaths breathing in to a comfortable fullness holding briefly at the top and then letting go Letting go of the breath, letting go of tension, letting go of the day, and now just doing a few more letting go breaths in this way, sending a message, letting your body and mind know that it's safe to relax, feel the weight of your body letting go, sinking down, deeper and deeper down into your bed, snuggling all the way down under the covers, feeling cozy, feeling safe, feeling calm and relaxed. And now imagine a feeling of relaxation beginning to flow down like warm honey, flowing down from the top of your head all the way down to the tips of your toes and spreading all the way to the edges of your body, bringing warmth and relaxation to every part of you giving way to this feeling of relaxation as it washes over you, helping you sink deeper and deeper down. And as you listen to the story, and as you follow my voice, this feeling will follow you, and your relaxation will only deepen with each word I read, Each word I read, you will feel more and more calm, more and more relaxed, sinking down into this wonderful feeling of drifting and letting go. And when this story comes to an end, you will continue to drift, feeling calm and relaxed, going deeper and deeper down, all the way down into a sound and restful sleep a sound and restful sleep but for now my friend just enjoy this feeling of dreamy relaxation knowing that it will follow you as we now begin our story Once upon a time, there lived a king who had two sons, and when he died, he left them all his treasures. But the younger brother began to squander it also lavishly, that the elder brother said, Let us divide the treasures, and you take your own share and do what you please with it. So the younger brother took his portion, and he went on his way until he met a man with a cat. "'How much for your cat?' asked the prince. "'Nothing less than a golden pound,' replied the man. "'A bargain indeed,' cried the prince, "'and immediately bought the cat for a golden sovereign. "'By and by he met a man with a dog "'and called out as before, "'How much for your dog?' "'And when the man said not less than a golden pound, "'the prince again declared it was a bargain indeed.' and bought it cheerfully. Then he met a man carrying a parrot, and called out as before, How much for the parrot? And when he heard it was only a golden sovereign, he was delighted, saying once again it was a bargain indeed. He had only one pound left, yet even then, when he met a man carrying a serpent, he cried out at once, How much for the snake? "'Nothing less than a golden sovereign,' said the man. "'And very little, too,' cried the prince, "'handing over his last coin.' "'So there he was, possessed of a cat, "'a dog, a parrot, and a snake, "'but not a single penny in his pocket. "'However, he set to work bravely to earn his living, "'but the hard labor wearied him dreadfully.' for being a prince, he was not used to it. Now when his serpent saw this, he felt sorry for his master and said, Prince, if you're not afraid to come to my father's house, he will perhaps give you something for saving me from that man. The prince was not a bit afraid of anything, so he and the serpent set off together. But when they arrived at the house, The snake bade the prince wait outside while it went in alone and prepared the snake father for a visitor. When the snake father heard what the serpent had to say, he was much pleased, declaring he would reward the prince by giving him anything he desired. So the serpent went out to fetch the prince into the snake father's presence, and when doing so, it whispered in his ear, My father will give you anything you desire. Remember only to ask for his little ring as a keepsake. This rather astonished the prince, who naturally thought a ring would be of little use to a man who was half starving. However, he did as he was bid, and when the snake father asked him what he desired, he replied, Thank you, but I have everything and want for nothing. Then, the snake father asked him once more what he would take as a reward, but again he answered that he wanted nothing, having all that heart could desire. Nevertheless, when the snake father asked him the third time, he replied, Since you wish me to take something, let it be the ring you wear on your finger as a keepsake. Then, the snake father frowned and looked displeased, saying, Were it not for my promise, I would have turned you into ashes on the spot, for daring to ask for my greatest treasure. But as I have said it, it must be. Take the ring and go. So the prince, taking the ring, set off homewards with his servant the serpent, to whom he said regretfully, This old ring is a mistake, I have only made the snake father angry by asking for it, and much good it will do me. It would have been much wiser to ask for a sack of gold. Not so, my prince, replied the serpent. That ring is a wonderful ring. You have only to make a clean square place on the ground. Plaster it over according to the custom of holy places. Put the ring in the center "'Sprinkle it with buttermilk, "'and then whatever you wish for will be granted immediately.' "'Vastly delighted at possessing so great a treasure "'as this magic ring, the prince went on his way rejoicing. "'But by and by, as he trudged along the road, "'he began to feel hungry "'and thought he would put his ring to the test. "'So, making a holy place,' He put the ring in the center, sprinkled it with buttermilk, and cried, O oh, ring, I want some sweetmeats for dinner. No sooner had he uttered the words than a dishful of the most delicious sweets appeared on the holy place. These he ate and then set off to a city he saw in the distance. As he entered the gate, A proclamation was being made that anyone who would build a palace of gold with golden stairs in the middle of the sea in the course of one night should have half the kingdom and the king's daughter in marriage. But if he failed, instant death should be his portion. Hearing this, the prince went at once to the court, and declared his readiness to fulfill the conditions. The king was much surprised at his temerity, and bade him consider well what he was doing, telling him that many princes had tried to perform the task before, and showing him a necklace of their heads in hopes that the dreadful sight might deter him from his purpose. But the prince merely replied that he was not afraid, and that he was certain he should succeed. The king ordered him to build the palace that very night, and setting a guard over him, bade the sentries be careful, the overly confident young man did not run away. Now when evening came, the prince lay down calmly to sleep, the guards whispered amongst themselves that he must be a madman to fling away his life so uselessly. Nevertheless, with the first streak of dawn, the prince arose and making a holy place, laid the ring in the center, sprinkled it with buttermilk and cried, O ring, I want a palace of gold with golden stairs in the midst of the sea. And lo, there in the sea it stood, all glittering in the sunshine. Seeing this, the guard ran to tell the king, who could scarcely believe his eyes, when he and all his court came to the spot and beheld the golden palace. Nevertheless, as the prince had fulfilled his promise, the king performed his and gave his daughter in marriage and half his kingdom to the prince. I don't want your kingdom or your daughter either, said the prince. I will take the palace I have built in the sea as my reward. So he went to live there, but when they sent the princess to him, he relented, seeing her beauty, and so they were married and lived very happily together. When the prince went out a-hunting, he took his dog with him, but he left the cat and the parrot in the palace to amuse the princess. Nevertheless, one day, when he returned, he found her very sad and sorrowful, and when he begged her to tell him what was the matter, she said, "'Oh, my dear prince,' I wish to be turned into gold by the power of the magic ring by which you built this glittering golden palace. So to please her, he made a holy place, put the ring in the center, sprinkled it with buttermilk, and cried, O ring, turn my wife into gold. No sooner had he said the words than his wish was accomplished. And his wife became a golden princess. When the golden princess was washing her beautiful golden hair one day, two long glittering hairs came out in the comb. She looked at them, regretting that there were no poor people near to whom she might have given the golden strands. Determining they should not be lost, she made a cup of green leaves and curling the hairs inside it, set it afloat upon the sea. As luck would have it, after drifting here and there, it reached a distant shore where a washerman was at work. The poor man, seeing the wonderful golden hairs, took them to the king, hoping for a reward, and the king in his turn showed them to his son, who was so much struck by the sight that he lay down on a dirty old bed to mark his extreme grief and despair, and, refusing to eat or drink anything, swore he must marry the owner of the beautiful golden hair or die. The king, greatly distressed at his son's state, cast about how he should find the golden-haired princess, and after calling his ministers and nobles to help him, came to the conclusion that it would be best to employ a wise woman. So he called the wisest woman in the land to him, and she promised to find the princess on condition of the king in his turn, promising to give her anything she desired as a reward. Then the wise woman caused a golden barge to be made, and in the barge a silken cradle swinging from silken ropes. When all was ready, she set off in the direction whence the leafy cup had come, taking with her four boatmen whom she trained carefully, always to stop rowing when she put up her finger and go on as long as she kept it down. After a long while, they came in sight of the golden palace, which the wise woman guessed at once must belong to the golden princess. So, putting up her finger, the boatmen ceased rowing, and the wise woman, stepping out of the boat, went swiftly into the palace. There she saw the golden princess, sitting on a golden throne, and going up to her, she laid her hands upon the princess's head, as is the custom when relatives visit each other. Afterwards, she kissed her and petted her, saying, "'Dearest niece, do you not know me? I'm your aunt.' But the princess at first drew back, and said she had never seen or heard of such an aunt. Then the wise woman explained how she had left home years before, and made up such a cunning, plausible story that the princess, who was only too glad to get a companion, really believed what she said, and invited her to stay a few days in the palace. Now as they sat talking, the wise woman asked the princess if she did not find it dull alone in the palace in the midst of the sea, and inquired how they managed to live there without servants and how the prince, her husband, came and went. Then the princess told her about the wonderful ring the prince wore day and night, and how by its help they had everything their hearts could desire. On this, the pretended aunt looked very grave, and suggested the terrible plight in which the princess would be left should the prince come to harm while away from her. She spoke so earnestly that the princess became quite alarmed, and the same evening when her husband returned, she said to him, "'Husband, I wish you would give me the ring to keep while you're away a-hunting, for if you were to come to harm, what would become of me all alone here in this sea palace?' So, next morning, when the prince went a-hunting,' he left the magical ring in his wife's keeping. As soon as the wicked wise woman knew that the ring was really in the possession of the princess, she persuaded her to go down the golden stairs to the sea and look at the golden boat with the silken cradle. By coaxing words and cunning arts, the golden princess was inveigled into the boat in order to have a tiny sail on the sea. But no sooner was her prize safe in the silken cradle, than the wise woman turned down her finger, and the boatman immediately began to row swiftly away. Soon the princess begged to be taken back, But the wise woman only laughed and answered all the poor girl’s tears and prayers with slaps and harsh words. At last, They arrived at the royal city, where great rejoicings arose when the news was noised abroad that the wise woman had returned with the golden bride for the lovesick prince. Nevertheless, despite all entreaties, the princess refused even to look at the prince for six months. And if in that time, she said, her husband did not claim her, She might then consider marriage, but until then, she would not hear of it. To this the prince agreed, seeing that six months was not a very long time to wait. Besides, he knew that even should her husband or any guardian turn up, nothing was easier than to kill them. Meanwhile, the prince, having returned from hunting, called out as usual to his wife on reaching the golden stairs, but received no answer. Then, entering the palace, he found no one there save the parrot, which flew towards him and said, O master, the princess's aunt came here and has carried her off in a golden boat. Hearing this, the poor prince fell to the ground in a fit and would not be consoled. At last, however, he recovered a little when the parrot, to comfort him, bade him wait there while it flew away over the sea to gather news of the lost bride. So the faithful parrot flew from land to land, from city to city, from house to house, until it saw the glitter of the princess's golden hair. Then it fluttered down beside her and bidding her to be brave, for it had come to help her, asking for the magic ring. Whereupon the golden princess wept more than ever, for she knew the wise woman kept the ring in her mouth day and night, and that none could take it from her. However, when the parrot consulted the cat, which had accompanied the faithful bird, the crafty creature declared nothing could be easier. "'All the princess has to do,' said the cat, "'is to ask the wise woman to give her rice for supper tonight. "'And instead of eating it all, "'she must scatter some in front of the rat hole in her room. "'The rest is my business and yours.' "'So that night, the princess had rice for supper. "'And instead of eating it all, "'she scattered some before the rat hole. "'Then she went to bed and and slept soundly, and the wise woman snored beside her. By and by, when all was quiet, the rats came out to eat up the rice, when the cat, with one bound, pounced on the one which had the longest tail, and carrying it to where the wise woman lay snoring with her mouth open, thrust the tail up her nose. She woke with a most terrific sneeze, and the ring flew out of her mouth onto the floor. Before she could turn, the parrot seized it in his beak, and, without pausing a moment, flew back with it to his master, the prince, who had nothing to do but make a holy place, lay the ring in the center, sprinkle it with buttermilk, and say... Oh, ring, I want my wife. And there she was, as beautiful as ever, and overjoyed at seeing the golden palace and her dear husband once more. Hello and welcome, I'm Joanne and thank you for joining me. Tonight I've chosen to read another story by Canadian author Lucy Maud Montgomery. Lately I've been really interested in exploring some of her other short stories that she wrote between 1906 and 1922 and I really enjoyed reading this one and so I wanted to share it with you. It's called The Man on the Train and I hope you like it. So take a moment now to settle in comfortably into your sleep space. Relishing that wonderful feeling of finally snuggling down into the softness of your bed after a long day. Knowing that you can let everything go now. Let all those cares and worries drift away. As you follow my voice now on this bedtime journey letting yourself drift away to another place in time. And then from there, all the way down to the land of sound, restful sleep. If you wish, you may enjoy taking a few slow, comfortable deep breaths as a way of sending a message, letting your body and mind know that you are safe and that it's safe to relax. As you breathe in, filling your body with relaxation from your feet all the way to the top of your head. And hold briefly. And then exhaling and letting go. Inhale, gathering the energy from the day. Hold. Exhale, softening and letting go. And one last time. Inhale, gather, hold. Exhale, release and let go. Now imagine a gentle breeze gently flowing over you, sweeping away the tension from the day, soft and gentle, lightly caressing your skin as it sweeps it all away, swirling all around you, touching your skin ever so gently. Blowing and clearing away anything that is weighing you down. Preparing you for a sound restful sleep. And you feel lighter. You feel relaxed. Letting go and surrendering the weight of your body. Relaxation pulling you deeper down into your bed. Softening letting go and as you listen to the story now this relaxation will only go deeper with each word I read you will feel more and more relaxed more and more calm sinking down into this wonderful feeling of letting go as we now begin our story When the telegram came from William George, Grandma Sheldon was all alone with Cyrus and Louise. And Cyrus and Louise, aged respectively 12 and 11, were not very much good, Grandma thought when it came to advising what was to be done. Grandma was all in a flutter, dear oh dear, as she said. The telegram said that Delia, William George's wife, was seriously ill down at Green Village. And William George wanted Samuel to bring Grandma down immediately. Delia had always thought there was nobody like Grandma when it came to taking care of the sick. But Samuel and his wife were both away, had been away for two days, and intended to be away for five more. They had driven to Sinclair, 20 miles away, to visit with Mrs. Samuel's folks for a week. "'Dear, oh dear, what shall I do?' said Grandma. "'Go right to Green Village on the evening train,' said Cyrus briskly. "'Dear, oh dear, and leave you two alone?' cried Grandma. "'Louise and I will do very well until tomorrow,' said Cyrus sturdily. "'We will send word to Sinclair by today's mail, "'and father and mother will be home by tomorrow night.' "'But I've never been on a train in my life,' protested Grandma nervously." I'm... I'm so frightened to go alone, and you never know what kind of people you might meet on the train. You'll be all right, Grandma. I'll drive you to the station, get your ticket, and put you on the train. Then you'll have nothing to do until the train gets to Green Village. I'll send a telegram to Uncle William George to meet you. I shall fall and break my neck getting off the train, said Grandma pessimistically she was wondering at the same time whether she had better take the black valise or the yellow, and whether William George would be likely to have plenty of flaxseed in the house. It was six miles to the station, and Cyrus drove Grandma in time to catch a train that reached Green Village at nine o'clock. Dear, oh dear, said Grandma, what if William George's folks ain't there to meet me? It's all very well, Cyrus, to say that they will be there. But you don't know. And it's all very well to say not to be nervous because everything will be alright. If you were 75 years old and never set foot on a train in your life, you'd be nervous too. You can't be sure that everything will be alright. You never know what sort of people you'll meet on the train. I may get on the wrong train, or lose my ticket, or get carried past Green Village, or get my pocket picked. Well, no, I won't do that. not one cent will I carry with me. You shall take back home all the money you don't need to get my ticket. Then I shall be easier in my mind. Dear, oh dear, if it wasn't that Delia is so seriously ill, I wouldn't go one step. Oh, you'll be all right, Grandma, assured Cyrus. He got Grandma's ticket for her, and Grandma tied it up in the corner of her handkerchief, Then the train came in and Grandma, clinging closely to Cyrus, was put on it. Cyrus found a comfortable seat for her and shook hands cheerily. Goodbye, Grandma. Don't be frightened. Here's the weekly Argus. I got it at the store. You may like to look over it. And Cyrus was gone and in a minute the station house and platform began to glide away. "'Dear, oh dear, what has happened to it?' thought Grandma in dismay. The next moment she exclaimed aloud, "'Why, it's us that's moving, not it!' Some of the passengers smiled pleasantly at Grandma. She was the type of old lady at which people do smile pleasantly. A Grandma with round, pink cheeks, soft brown eyes, and lovely snow-white curls is a nice person to look at whenever she is found.' After a while, Grandma, to her amazement, discovered that she liked riding on the train. It was not at all the disagreeable experience she had expected it to be, why she was just as comfortable as if she were in her own rocking chair at home, and there were so many people to look at, and many of the ladies had such beautiful dresses and hats. After all, The people you met on a train, thought Grandma, are surprisingly like the people you meet off it. If it had not been for wondering how she would get off at Green Village, Grandma would have enjoyed herself thoroughly. Four or five stations farther on, the train halted at a lonely-looking place consisting of the station house and a barn surrounded by scrub woods and blueberry barrens. One passenger got on and finding only one vacant seat in the crowded car and sat right down beside Grandma Sheldon. Grandma Sheldon held her breath while she looked him over. Was he a pickpocket? He didn't appear like one, but you can never be sure of the people you meet on the train. Grandma remembered with a sigh of thankfulness that she had no money. Besides, he seemed very respectable and harmless. He was quietly dressed in a suit of dark blue serge with a black overcoat. He wore his hat well down on his forehead and was clean shaven. His hair was very black, but his eyes were blue. Nice eyes, Grandma thought. She always felt great confidence in a man who had bright, open blue eyes. Grandpa Sheldon, who had died so long ago, four years after their marriage, had had bright blue eyes. To be sure, he had had fair hair, reflected Grandma. It's real odd to see such black hair with such light blue eyes. Well, he's real nice looking, and I don't believe there's a mite of harm in him. The early autumn night had now fallen, and Grandma could not amuse herself by watching the scenery. She remembered the paper Cyrus had given her and took it out of her basket. It was an old weekly. A fortnight back, on the front page was a long account of a murder case, and into this Grandma plunged eagerly. Sweet old Grandma Sheldon, who would not have harmed a fly and hated to see even a mouse trap set, simply reveled in the newspaper accounts of murders, and the more shocking and cold-blooded they were, the more eagerly did Grandma read of them. This murder story was particularly good from Grandma's point of view. It was full of thrills. A man had been shot down, apparently in cold blood, and his supposed murderer was still at large and had eluded all the efforts of justice to capture him. His name was Mark Hartwell, and he was described as a tall, fair man with full auburn beard and curly, light hair. What a shocking thing, said Grandma aloud. Her companion looked at her with a kindly amused smile. What is it, he asked. Why, this murder at Charlottesville, answered Grandma, forgetting in her excitement that it was not safe to talk to people you meet on the train. It just makes my blood run cold to read about it. And to think that the man who did it is still around the country somewhere. "'plotting other murders, I haven't a doubt. "'What is the good of the police?' "'They're dull fellows,' agreed the dark man. "'But I don't envy that man his conscience,' said Grandma solemnly. "'What must a man feel like who has the blood of a fellow creature on his hands? "'Depend upon it, his punishment has begun already, caught or not.' "'That is true,' said the dark man quietly." Such a good-looking man, too, said Grandma, looking wistfully at the murderer's picture. It doesn't seem possible that he can have killed anybody, but the paper says there isn't a doubt. He's probably guilty, said the dark man, but nothing is known of his provocation. The affair may not have been so cold-blooded as the account states. Those newspaper fellows never err on the side of undercoloring. I really think, said Grandma slowly, that I would like to see a murderer, just one. Whenever I say anything like that, Adelaide, Adelaide is Samuel's wife, looks at me as if she thought there was something wrong about me. And perhaps there is, but I do, all the same. When I was a little girl, there was a man in our settlement who was suspected of poisoning his wife. She died very suddenly. I used to look at him with such interest, but it wasn't satisfactory, because you can never be sure whether he was really guilty or not. I never could believe that he was, because he was such a nice man in some ways, and so good and kind to children. I don't believe a man who was bad enough to poison his wife could have any good in him. Perhaps not, agreed the dark man. He had absent-mindedly folded up Grandma's old copy of the Argus and put it in his pocket. Grandma did not like to ask him for it, although she would have liked to see if there were any more murder stories in it. Besides, just at that moment, the conductor came around for tickets. Grandma looked in the basket for her handkerchief. It was not there. She looked on the floor and on the seat and under the seat, It was not there. She stood up and shook herself, still no handkerchief. Dear, oh dear, exclaimed Grandma wildly. I've lost my ticket. I always knew I would. I told Cyrus I would. Oh, where can it be? The conductor scowled unsympathetically. The dark man got up and helped Grandma search, but no ticket was to be found. "'You'll have to pay the money then, and some extra,' said the conductor gruffly. "'I can't. I haven't a cent of money,' wailed Grandma. "'I gave it all to Cyrus because I was afraid my pocket would be picked. "'Oh, what shall I do?' "'Don't worry. I'll make it all right,' said the dark man. "'He took out his pocketbook and handed the conductor a bill. "'That grumbling conductor made the change and marched onward, while Grandma, pale with excitement and relief, sank back into her seat. "'I can't tell you how much I am obliged to you, sir,' she said tremulously. "'I don't know what I should have done. "'Would he have put me off right here in the snow?' "'I hardly think he would have gone to such lengths,' said the dark man with a smile. "'But he's a cranky, disobliging fellow enough I know him of old.' "'and you must not feel overly grateful to me. "'I'm glad of the opportunity to help you. "'I had an old grandmother myself once,' he added with a sigh. "'You must give me your name and address, of course,' said Grandma, "'and my son Samuel Sheldon of Midvern "'will see that the money is returned to you. "'Well, this is a lesson to me. "'I'll never trust myself on a train again, "'and all I wish is that I was safely off this one,' This fuss has worked my nerves all up again. Don't worry, Grandma. I'll see you safely off the train when we get to Green Village. Will you, though? Will you now? said Grandma eagerly. I'll be real easy in my mind then, she added with a returning smile. I feel as if I could trust you for anything, and I'm a real suspicious person, too. They had a long talk after that. Or, rather, Grandma talked and the dark man listened and smiled. She told him all about William George and Delia and their baby, and about Samuel and Adelaide and Cyrus and Louise and the three cats and the parrot. He seemed to enjoy her accounts of them too. When they reached Green Village Station, he gathered up Grandma's parcels and helped her tenderly off the train. "'Anybody here to meet Mrs. Sheldon?' he asked of the station master. "'The latter shook his head. "'Don't think so. "'Haven't seen anybody here to meet anybody tonight.' "'Dear, oh dear,' Say, poor Grandma. "'This is just what I expected. "'They never got Cyrus's telegram. "'Well, I might have known it. "'What shall I do?' "'How far is it to your sons?' asked the dark man. "'Only half a mile,' just over the hill there, but I'll never get there alone this dark night. Of course not, but I'll go with you. The road is good. We'll do fine. But that train won't wait for you, gasped Grandma, half in protest. It doesn't matter. The Star Mount Freight passes here in a half an hour, and I'll go on her. Come along, Grandma. Oh, but you're good, said Grandma. Some woman is proud to have you for a son the man did not answer. He had not answered any of the personal remarks Grandma had made to him in her conversation. They were not long in reaching William George's house for the village road was good and Grandma was smart on her feet. She was welcomed with eagerness and surprise. To think that there was no one to meet you, exclaimed William George, but I never dreamed of you coming by train, knowing how you were set against it telegram? No, I got no telegram. Suppose Cyrus forgot to send it. I'm most heartily obliged to you, sir, for looking after my mother so kindly. It was a pleasure, said the dark man courteously. He had taken off his hat, and they saw a curious scar shaped like a large red butterfly high up on his forehead under his hair. I am delighted to have been of any assistance to her. He would not wait for supper. The next train would be in and he must not miss it. There are people looking for me, he said, with a curious smile. They will be much disappointed if they do not find me. He had gone, and the whistle of the Star Mount Freight had blown before Grandma remembered that he had not given her his name and address. Dear, oh dear, how are we ever going to send that money to him, she exclaimed, and he is so nice and good-hearted. Grandma worried over this for a week in the intervals of looking after Delia. One day, William George came in with a large city daily in his hands. He looked curiously at Grandma and then showed her the front-page picture of a man, clean-shaven, with an oddly-shaped scar high up on his forehead. "'Did you ever see that man, Mother?' he asked." Of course I did, said Grandma excitedly. Why, it's the man I met on the train. Who is he? What is his name? That is Mark Hartwell, who shot Amos Gray at Charlottesville three weeks ago, said William George quietly. Grandma looked at him blankly for a moment. It couldn't be, she gasped at last. That man, a murderer? I'll never believe it. It's true enough, Mother. The whole story is here. He had shaved his beard and dyed his hair and came near getting clear out of the country. They were on his trail the day he came down in the train with you and lost it because of his getting off to bring you here. His disguise was so perfect that there was little fear of his being recognized so long as he hid that scar. But it was seen in Montreal and he was run to the earth there. He has made a full confession. I don't care, said Grandma. I'll never believe he was all bad. A man who would do what he did for a poor old woman like me when he was flying for his life too. No, no, there was good in him, even if he did kill that man, and I'm sure he must feel terrible over it. In this view, Grandma persisted. She never would say or listen to a word against Mark Hartwell and she had only pity for him, whom everyone else condemned. With her own trembling hands, she wrote him a letter to accompany the money Samuel sent before Hartwell was taken to the penitentiary for life. She thanked him again for his kindness to her, and assured him that she knew he was sorry for what he had done, and that she would pray for him every night of her life. Mark Hartwell had been hard and defiant enough, but the prison officials told that he cried like a child over Grandma Sheldon's little letter. There's nobody all bad, says Grandma when she relates the story. I used to believe a murderer must be, but I know better now. I think of that poor man often. He was so kind and gentle to me. He must have been a good boy once. I write him a letter every Christmas, and I send him tracks and papers. He's my own little charity, but I've never been on the train since, and I never will be again. You can never tell what will happen to you, or what sort of people you'll meet on a train. Tonight's story is called Jessamine, by Canadian author Lucy Maud Montgomery who is well known for her famous series of Anne of Green Gables. This short little story is a bit different than my usual tales, but it's a very gentle read, and I really hope you enjoy it. When you listen to a story, whatever your age, you take a journey into your imagination, to another place in time, you forget about your surroundings, and you become fully immersed into an imaginary world. And with everything happening, who couldn't use that right now? So go ahead and settle in comfortably into your sleep space. And when you're ready, take a deep, comfortable breath. And as you exhale, just letting go, allowing your mind to drift to another place in time while following my voice, just focusing on my words, and allow yourself to drift as you listen into a deep state of relaxation And as you allow yourself to drift, allow your cares and worries to drift. Feeling calm, feeling safe, breathing slowly and deeply, and just drifting. You can just let everything go now. Let everything go as you listen just following my voice, drifting to another place in time in your imagination, feeling calm, feeling relaxed, sinking down into this wonderful feeling of letting go as we now begin this journey together. When the vegetable man knocked, Jessamine went to the door wearily. She felt quite well acquainted with him. He had been coming all the spring, and his cheery greeting always left a pleasant afterglow behind him. But it was not the vegetable man after all, at least not the right one. This one was considerably younger. He was tall and sunburned with a ruddy smiling face and keen, pleasant blue eyes, and he had a spray of honeysuckle pinned on his coat. Want any garden stuff this morning? Jessamine shook her head. We always get ours from Mr. Bell. This is his day to come. Well, you won't see Mr. Bell for a while. He fell off a loft out at his place yesterday and broke his leg. I'm his nephew, and I'm going to fill his place till he gets round again. Oh, I'm so sorry, for Mr. Bell, I mean. Have you any green peas? Yes, heaps of them. I'll bring them in. Anything else? Not today, said Jessamine, with a wistful glance at the honeysuckle. Mr. Bell Jr. saw her glance at it. In an instant, the honeysuckle was unpinned and handed to her. If you like posies, you're welcome to this. I guess you're fond of flowers, he added as he noted the flash of delight that passed over her pale face. Yes, indeed, they remind me of home, of the country. Oh, how sweet this is. Your country bred then been in the city long? Since last fall, I was born and brought up in the country. I wish I was back. I can't get over being homesick. This honeysuckle seems to bring it right back. We had honeysuckles around our porch at home. You don't like the city then? Oh, no. I sometimes feel as if I should smother here. I shall never feel at home here, I'm afraid. Where did you live before you came here? Up at Middleton. It was an old-fashioned place, but pretty. Our house was covered with vines, and there were trees all about it, and great green fields beyond. But I don't know what makes me tell you this. I forgot I was talking to a stranger. Pretty little woman, Andrew Bell thought to himself as he drove away. She doesn't look happy, though. I suppose she's married some city chap and has to live in town. I guess I don't agree with her. Her eyes had a real hungry look in them over that honeysuckle. She seemed near about crying when she talked of the country. Jessamine felt more like crying than ever when she went back to her work. Her head ached, and she was very tired. The tiny kitchen was hot and stifling. How she longed for the great, roomy kitchen in her old home, with its spotless floors and floods of sunshine streaming in through the maples outside. There was room to live and breathe there, and from the door one looked out over green meadows, under a glorious arch of pure blue sky, away to the purple hills in the distance. Jessamine Stacy had always lived in the country. When her sister died and the old home had to go, Jessamine could only accept the shelter offered by her brother, John Stacy, who did business in the city. Of her stylish sister-in-law, Jessamine was absolutely in awe. At first, Mrs. John was by no means pleased at the necessity of taking a country sister into her family circle. But one day, when the servant girl took a tantrum and left, Mrs. John found it very convenient to have in the house a person who could step into Eliza's place as promptly and efficiently as Jessamine could. Indeed, she found it so convenient that Eliza never had a successor. Jessamine found herself in the position of of maid-of-all-work and kitchen drudge for board and clothes. She never complained, but she grew thinner and paler as the winter went by. She had worked as hard on the farm, but it was the close confinement and weary routine that took a toll on her. Mrs. John was demanding and pettish. Her brother John was absorbed in his business worries and had no time to waste on his sister. Now, when the summer had come, her homesickness was almost unbearable. The next day, Mr. Bell came and handed her a big bunch of sweet briar roses. "'Here you are,' he said heartily. "'I took the liberty to bring you these today.' seeing you're so fond of posies. The country roads are pink with them now. Why don't you get your husband to bring you out for a drive someday? You'd be as welcome as a lark at my farm. I will when he comes along, but I haven't seen him yet. Mr. Bell gave a prolonged whistle. Excuse me, I thought you were Mrs. Something or Other for sure. Aren't you mistress here? Oh, no, my brother's wife is the mistress here. I'm only Jessamine. She laughed again. She was holding the roses against her face, and her eyes sparkled over them roguishly. Andrew Bell looked at her admiringly. You're a country rose yourself, miss, and you ought to be blooming out in the fields instead of wilting in here. I wish I was... Thank you so much for the roses, Mr... Mr... Bell. Andrew Bell. That's my name. I live out at Pine Pastures. We're all bells out there. Can't throw a stone without hitting one. Glad you like the roses. After that, he brought Jessamine a bouquet every trip. Sometimes he brought a bunch of field daisies or golden buttercups. Other times a green glory of spicy ferns or a cluster of old-fashioned garden flowers. They keep life in me, Jessamine told him. They were great friends by this time. True, she knew little about him, but she felt instinctively that he was a gentleman and very kind-hearted. One day when he came, Jessamine met him gleefully. No, nothing today. There's no dinner to cook. You don't say. Where are the folks? Gone on an excursion. They won't be back until tonight. They won't? Well, I'll tell you what to do. You get ready, and when I'm through my rounds, we'll go for a drive up the country. Oh, Mr. Bell, but won't it be too much bother for you? Well, I reckon not. You want an excursion as well as other folks, and you shall have it. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, I'll be ready. You don't know how much it means to me. Poor woman, thought Mr. Bell as he drove away. It's downright cruelty, that's what it is, to keep her penned up like that. You might as well coop up a lark in a henhouse and expect it to thrive and sing. I'd like to give that brother of hers a piece of my mind. When he lifted her up to the high seat of his express wagon that afternoon, he said, Now, I want you to do something. Just shut your eyes, and don't open them again until I tell you to. Jessamine laughed and obeyed. Finally, she heard him say, Look. Jessamine opened her eyes with a little cry, they were on a remote country road, cool and dim and quiet, in the very heart of the beech woods. Long banners of light fell across the gray boles. Along the roadsides grew sheets of feathery ferns. Above, the sky was gloriously blue. The air was sweet with the wild woodsy smell of the forest. Jessamine lifted and clasped her hands in rapture. Oh, how lovely. Do you know where we're going? said Mr. Bell delightedly. Out to my farm at Pine Pastures. My aunt keeps house for me, and she'll be real glad to see you. You're just going to have a real good time this afternoon. They had a delightful drive to begin with, and presently Mr. Bell turned into a wide lane. This is Cloverside Farm. I'm proud of it, I'll admit. There isn't a finer place in the country. What do you think of it? Oh, it is lovely. It is like home. Look at those great fields. I'd like to go lie down in that clover. Mr. Bell lifted her from the wagon and marched her up a flowery garden path. You shall do it, and everything else you want to. Here, Aunt, this is the young lady I spoke of. Make her at home while I tend to the horses. Miss Bell was a pleasant-faced woman with silver hair and kind blue eyes. She took Jessamine's hand in a friendly fashion. Come in, dear. You're welcome as a June rose. When Mr. Bell returned, he found Jessamine standing on the porch with her hands full of honeysuckle and her cheeks pink with excitement. "'I declare you've got roses already,' he exclaimed. "'If they'd only stay now and not bleach out again, "'what would you like to do first? "'Oh, I don't know. "'There are so many things I want to do. "'Those flowers in the garden are calling me, "'and I want to go down to that hollow and pick buttercups.' And I want to stay right here and look at things. Mr. Bell laughed. Come with me to the pasture and see my Jersey calves. There's something worth seeing. Come, Aunt. This way, Miss Stacy. He led the way down the lane, the two women following together. Jessamine thought she must be in a pleasant dream. The whole afternoon was a feast of delight to her starved heart. When sunset came, she sat down, tired out but radiant, on the porch steps. Her hat had slipped back, and her hair was curling around her face. Her dark eyes were aglow. The roses still bloomed in her cheeks. Mr. Bell looked at her admiringly. If a man could only see that pretty sight every night, he thought. When the moon rose, Mr. Bell brought his team around, and they drove back through the clear night, past the wonderful stillness of the great beech woods and the wide fields. The farmer looked sideways at his companion. The little thing wants to be petted and looked after, he thought. She's just pining away for home and love and why can't she have it? She's dying by inches in that hole back in town. Jessamine was living over again in fancy the joys of the afternoon, the ramble in the pasture, the drink of water from the spring under the hillside pines, the bountiful old-fashioned country supper in the vine-shaped dining room, the cup of new milk in the dairy at sunset and all the glory of the skies and meadows and trees. How could she go back to her cage again? The next week, Mr. Bell Sr. resumed his visits, and the young farmer came no more to the side door of number 49. Jessamine missed him greatly. Mr. Bell Sr. never brought her clover or honeysuckle. But one day his nephew suddenly reappeared. Jessamine opened the door for him, and her face lighted up, but Mr. Bell saw that she'd been crying. Did you think I had forgotten you, he asked? Not a bit of it. Harvest was on, and I couldn't get clear before. I've come to ask you when you intend to take another drive to Cloverside Farm. What have you been up to? You look as if you'd been working too hard. I... I haven't felt very well. I'm glad you came today, Mr. Bell. Perhaps I shall not see you again. I wanted to say goodbye and thank you for all your kindness. Goodbye? Why? Where are you going? My brother went west a week ago, faltered Jessamine she could not bring herself to tell the clear-eyed farmer that John Stacy had failed and had been obliged to start for the West without saying goodbye to his creditors. His wife and I are going too next week. Oh, Jessamine, exclaimed Mr. Bell in despair. Don't go. You mustn't. I want you at Cloverside Farm. I came today on purpose to ask you. I love you, and I'll make you happy if you'll marry me. What do you say, Jessamine? Jessamine, by way of answer, sat down on the nearest chair and began to cry. Oh, don't, said the wooer in distress. I didn't want to make you feel bad. If you don't like the idea, I won't mention it again. Oh, it isn't that. But I... I thought nobody cared what became of me. You are so kind. I'm afraid I'd only be a bother to you. I'll risk that. You shall have a happy home, sweet girl. Will you come to it? Yes. It was very indistinct and faltering, but Mr. Bell heard it and considered it a most eloquent answer. Mrs. John fumed and sulked and chose to consider herself deceived and injured. But Mr. Bell was a resolute man, and a few days later he came for the last time to number 49 and took his bride away with him. As they drove through the beech woods, he put his arm tenderly around the shy, smiling little woman beside him and said, You'll never be sorry for this, my dear. And she never was. I hope you enjoyed this short little story. Perhaps you are very, very close now to drifting off to sleep. Or maybe you've already drifted off into the land of dreams. But if you're still following my voice then you can imagine that wonderful feeling of drowsiness beginning to spread all through your body. That pleasant feeling of letting go. And it feels amazing to sink into this wonderful feeling as you continue to drift, sinking deeper and deeper into this wonderful sleep. And as you drift, letting go of everything and just focus on my voice, feeling so good, deeper and deeper, so calm, so relaxed, comfortable, safe, peaceful, and tranquil. Enjoying this deep restorative rest as you continue to let go now and drift even deeper, feeling sleepier and sleepier and sleepier. And in a moment, I will count down from 10 all the way to 1. And at the count of 1, you can drift down even deeper, deeper than ever before. Each number I count, helps you let go more and more, feeling sleepier and sleepier. 10, 9, 8, drifting into 7, drifting into 6, drifting into 5, drifting into 4, down to three, down to two, drifting all the way down to one, and into deep, restful sleep.